Welcome to the Cap City Outfitters podcast. This is episode 110. You've got Chris and Brian, and today we're going to do uh, a discussion on the need for medical training, uh, particularly trauma medical training, uh, being can you stabilize somebody long enough to get them on a bird or in a bus. Uh, we're going to do a brief kind of, call it the legal disclaimer, the fine print. Um, this does not constitute medical training. Um, you're listening to two guys on a podcast who can apply a tourniquet and maybe pack a wound. Yeah. Um, in training, uh, we do not do this as our day jobs. We are not certified medical professionals. Uh, again, please go see competent, qualified, uh, professionally taught uh, trauma medical training. You will be better off for it. Absolutely. And and when you when seeking that training, you're looking for somebody who has. Uh, certificates as instructors from either TCCC Foundation or whatever the, or their organizing body is, or the National Association of EM, EMTs, the NAEMT certification as an instructor. Um, either one of those certificates of instruction or, or a capability, you know, credentialing for those folks should get you there. Additionally, there are some folks that are uh, certified by the Red Cross for things like Stop the Bleed, which would also teach you use of tourniquets, pressure bandages, etc. Um, there are a lot of good folks out there teaching this stuff. Um, and, and the information has changed a little bit over the last couple decades, but, but honestly, um, you know, your, your Boy Scout training from back in the day using cravats and sticks to make tourniquets, um, will still serve you better than no training at all, but they have changed some of the things around. One of the things I would say to keep an eye on with current training versus maybe what you learn in the scouts or learn in the military through self-aid and buddy care or TCCC. Um, is, is we operate under the, the March algorithm. And the number one thing, it used to always be ABCs, check the airways first, airway bleeding circulation. Um, and that has switched over to massive hemorrhage. Um, you, can, you can survive without air for a couple minutes, uh, but if you run out of blood, the game's pretty much over. Uh, yeah. We can't, you know, the, the blood is what carries oxygen to the body. So even if the lungs aren't lunging, um, if the blood's going round and round, we can make magic happen for a while. So, so, so that's kind of the, you know, one of the big changes in this, if, if you're studying this stuff, um, chasing down either the March algorithm or, or the bath terminology. Um, and, and then also, you know, one of the things that we actually spent some time on specifically with the med training end of things, um, was doing a proper assessment. So yeah. uh, let's, let's start off with the assessment and how you properly assess somebody and, you know, kind of a review of that. Is that Sure. So like, okay. Um, so w one of the guys that was training with us on this particular evening is, is a uh, Red Cross Stop the Bleed instructor. He's also certified by some manner of, of Ohio law enforcement training governing agency, whatever that would be today um, with OPATA uh, or, or whatever's left of OPATA. So I'm not sure who the governing body is there. But anyway, he's a, he's a certified instructor. And, and what he trained basically mirrors the same things that I was taught in the military 20 or 30 years ago. Um, what I understand they're training now from guys that I talk to who are current on TCCC and our instructors. Uh, basically, what you're doing is, is hopefully in 60 seconds or less, but two minutes or less anyway, um, not, not wanting to skimp on the amount of time you spend, but also understand it's urgent if you're not finding what you're looking for someplace, look for it someplace else quickly. Time is of the essence. Um, so basically, you are running your hands over every square inch of someone's body in a methodical manner. Um, and, and one of the things that they're currently teaching is basically you're not running your hands all over someone's leg, all the way around both sides of someone's leg, then looking at your hands. You're literally running two hands side by side, maybe even fingers slightly touching, 
down the bottom of somebody's leg as they're laying there, and then you're looking at your hands and you're actually looking for blood. Um, and then you're going to the inside of that same person's leg and you're running your hands down the inside of their leg and you're looking for blood. You're pulling your hands out and actually looking at your hands and looking for blood. And then you're going, uh, you know, from a medial swipe to a lateral swipe on the same leg where you're on the outside of their leg and you're running your hands down their leg and you're pulling your hands out and you're looking for blood. And then you're going, uh, anterior, you know, on the front of the leg and running your hands down the front of the leg and swipe down all the way down, touching the full way. Um, and, and what did he say? Look for blood. Yeah, look, look for blood. But what was it? It wasn't. It, it was. Uh, it was kitty paws, not kitten claws, or something yeah. like that. Or keeping your fingers together um, so you're not leaving gaps. If you think about the size of a projectile from even a nine millimeter, uh, it's nine millimeters in diameter. Um, it's not very big. Uh, five five six is is point two two four in diameter. It's yeah. not a very big hole on the entrance hole. So you know, keep your fingers together. Swipe. Look. Keep your fingers together. Swipe. Look. Etc. And you're running methodically through both legs, uh, both arms, uh, front and back of torso, side of torso, etc., and and working your way through this methodically. And then you're also checking, you know, neck, head, uh, face, things of that nature. Um, but you're trying to do this assessment as quickly as possible. Generally, when you find blood, you know there's something going on. Um, I will tell you that you know one of the things that we discussed was how much blood. If you find a little bit of blood, maybe keep going to the next thing and make sure there's nothing else major. If what you find, the first thing you come across is a pretty big wound with a lot of blood coming out of it, deal with that one first. And then as soon as you're done dealing with that one, press on to the next thing. You need to always be reassessing, always be rechecking the patient, always be re-swiping the patient, um, checking tourniquets, checking bandages and stuff like that. Anytime you move somebody, touch somebody, hand somebody off, anytime it's maybe been more than five or 10 minutes, if you can get back to them, get back yeah. to them and double check things. Maybe they've moved around or something like that. Um, but you want to do as thorough of an assessment as you can in a reasonable amount of time as to not let somebody bleed out by not getting to the important part quickly. Uh, once you've done that, then generally you want to treat whatever that wound is and then get that patient in what is referred to as, uh, there's, what do they call it, the re recovery position? Yeah, so the re recovery position, we're putting the patient on their side, uh, preferably on the, the wound side down. Yeah. Um, this is, in the, the LE community, um, this is their signal to everybody else that this patient has been treated. Yeah. Um, the patient is in a position where they should be able to breathe. Um, they're not going to vomit on themselves or yeah. choke on you know, whatever's going on, um, but it, it gives additional first responders kind of a signal to say, hey, either evacuate this person or they're going to be stable enough that we can go past them and do additional work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so we started off, you know, that's that's kind of the assessment phase of this. And again, uh, somebody who's TCCC certified, somebody who's, who's uh, NAEMT certified, um, Somebody who's you know certified by whatever governing body is is going to is going to run you through the fine points of this and probably some manner of preferred order of operations, um, you know, and that's cool. However, you know, however you guys want to do it. Um, there's 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 you know we might not have described the perfect way to do it because again we're just two guys who who went through a little bit of refresher training, um, you know. But it it is uh it the the assessment part of this is actually really flipping critical. Um, the, the couple times I've done med training classes where we've had moulage kits and had people looking for blood and stuff like that. Um, if you're new to this, it's real easy to stop at the first thing you find. And it's also real easy to be squeamish when you're working around somebody's groin area or somebody's chest area 
um, or somebody's derriere, you know, nobody wants to get handy with stuff like that. And I'm going to tell you in this environment, this is your opportunity to get handy with somebody. Unfortunately, um, it'll probably be one of the dudes you train with and not the hot chick from the gym. Sorry. Um, but anyway, you know, there's an opportunity to get a free pass. Um, you know, you want to not be an idiot, but you got to understand that you've got to put hands where your hands need to go to make sure that you get that, that, that assessment done properly. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a key component to this. The reality check is actually applying a tourniquet um, or, or applying a pressure dressing or applying a chest seal or applying whatever reaction to what you found um, is, is probably easier than doing the assessment in some cases. Um, so, you know, that, but the assessment's a really big deal to understand how to do an assessment quickly and thoroughly both because time is of the essence, but so is not missing something. Yeah. So anything to add to the assessment into that? Um, one of the things that came up was wearing like tan, col tan colored gloves, mm -hmm. or blue colored gloves. Yeah. Uh, so that you can see blood on them easily. Yeah. Uh, I know everybody likes to have tactical black everything. Yep. But in this case, you know, it's hard to see blood on black. Yep. Uh, if you're doing this in a low light environment, a headlamp with a blue lens works really well mm -hmm. because red blood will fluoresce under the blue lens. Uh, if you're trying to be tactical with your red lead, red yeah. headlamp, um, the blood will disappear under the red light. Yes. So important to work with either white lights or um, blue lights, again, work really well. Yeah. If, if you need the light discipline and you've got to run a blue light, that's great. If at all possible, run run a run a, run a white light. Um, the, the reality check is the person could be injured. Um, maybe they were carrying around packets of syrup from... Uh, the Waffle House when they got shot, and that's what blew up. Um, you know, something like that. Who knows? But uh, the reality is, the other awful, bodily, awful. yeah, other other bodily fluids can be involved in these conversations that may or may not fluoresce. And so, having an appropriate amount of light to see what you're actually doing is the best thing. Uh, certain environments, certain security concerns may may you know predicate not doing that. Uh, but understand that you know what white light and lighter color glows would be great. Um, blue gloves often used by docs and medical professionals in a clinical environment. Um, you know, tan gloves used by the tactical dudes are cool. You can generally see stuff well on tan. Uh, but like Brian said, black or dark purple or stuff like that, some of the tactical stuff out there, um, it's really hard to see what's going on on your hands, especially in any kind of diminished light environment. Yeah. Um, additionally, let's have a conversation about the color of tourniquets uh, and identification of med gear. Um, one of the conversations was, this is, uh, everybody in my tribe knows that if a zipper has a red zipper pull on it, or it's a red bag, or it has a red cross on it, um, that that denotes that that is med gear. It's some consistency in how you set your gear up and how the people that you're concerned about knowing how to use that gear or knowing how to access that gear, they, they need to know what red means. Uh, I've been using red zipper pulls for a long time. Uh, that was uh, kind of a, something I noticed that a guy I trained with, um, Mike, Mike Hewitt, um, Doc from Risk Taker, um, Tactical down in Florida. Uh, one of the things that he pushed and Justin and some of the guys from that tribe, uh, make sure you mark stuff appropriately. And that goes hand in hand along with, we'll have guys come in here who are my age, not, not young, not military, not invading Afghanistan, not on a SWAT team doing tactical operations, um, and, and they want a black tourniquet because they don't want the orange tourniquet to stand out in their tactical area of operations, which is 
generally their living room. Or their mom's basement. Or their mom's basement if they're younger. Um, in some cases, maybe older. I don't know. Anyway, you, you, you do you. Um, the, the orange tourniquet, if, you, if somebody needs a tourniquet, it's really nice to be able to say, hey, grab the orange tourniquet out of my range bag. Um, some people may not know what a tourniquet looks like, but if it's the bright orange thing and it's the only bright orange thing, it's likely that you won't need anything faster than you need a tourniquet other than maybe a gun or a knife. Yeah. Um, so, you know, having orange, bright, bright, bright medical gear and having medical gear and easily identifiable carriage devices, pouches, packages, bags, etc., is is definitely a really big deal. Um, if you are a tactical law enforcement officer, you're, you know, you don't want to stand out like a sore zeb with an orange tourniquet. I get it. If you work for a PD that requires you to wear a tourniquet on your uniform and uniform standards don't allow orange tourniquets, that's cool. I get it. Um, if you carry spares, though, or carry them anywhere else on kit, I really do recommend orange. It's, it's easily identifiable, uh, super visible, etc. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, I, I, I get it. Sometimes you can't always do that. So just, just be aware of that. Yeah. So um, we, we did some self-application. Um, do you want to go on to the actual devices and stuff like that and some of the things we observed without getting into the weeds of how to do it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so guys, again, not, not medical professionals, not trying to train anything, just some observations from one of, one of our training events. Um, self-application of bandages, self-application of tourniquets, um, self-application of chest seals, uh, self-application of a couple of other devices. Uh, we chose not to let anybody needle D themselves and nobody was really up for running their own NPA. Uh, so curiously enough, we do have a couple guys that have, you know, I, I've, I've run an NPA on myself. Um, not a pleasant experience. Uh, one of our guys did it, and it's no big deal. Um, I was thinking about asking him out on a date, you know, diminished gag reflex and all that. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, some of the things you encounter with self-application, if, if you're new to it, we had a few guys that hadn't done it, and it was and it was pretty obvious, and it was yeah. and it was a great learning moment, a teachable moment for them, you know, or, or they hadn't done it enough. You know, they they put it on buddies, but put it on yourself is a whole different kettle of fish, um, and and it was it was fun to watch. Or they had the one-hour version of this versus the yeah, 16-hour version exactly, of this. Yeah, or, or going down to tactical response and doing, you know, the five-day, you know, kind of deal where you really get immersed in it and you do it over and over and over and over again. Um, the, the reps on this stuff matters. Um, and, and I'm not, and I don't say this to pick on any of the guys there that were struggling. It, I, literally, a lot of light bulbs came on, and it was pretty cool. Um, and those of us that have done it lots and lots of times, just doing it one more time was like that, God, this is a pain in the butt. This is something I should practice more. Um, you know, we all right now, especially we're behind the gun dry firing, we're behind the gun shooting airsoft. We're finding every way we can, we can, you know, gear up so that, you know, uncle Joe's going to come take our guns. The boogaloo's going to kick off, blah, 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 blah. Um, again, you're way more likely to use med gear than you are guns. Um, so seeing some guys get some introduction to this stuff, seeing some guys get some actual practice or extra reps. Um, seeing some guys do self-application that had never done self-application, even though they'd done buddy application, uh, was, was really, it was cool. It was good to see the light bulbs come on. It was good to hear a number of guys go, okay, when's Greg Elifritz teaching this next med class? Let's, let's get in that next med class. Let's do it now. Uh, when's, when's Carrie from Dark Angel going to be in Ohio and, and doing a class? Um, you know, where, where can I chase down, you know, Jay Crow consulting here locally and see, you know, if he's not out doing military stuff somewhere else, what's he doing here locally? Let's talk to some of these guys and get that training. Um, choose your rabbis wisely, but there's some really good dudes out there to train with. This was, I think, the eye-opener for uh, – the biggest thing that I noticed that I liked about that training night was seeing a lot of yeah. people go, crap, let's do a class. 
So, you know, so we're actually looking at, you know, amongst our training group, uh, maybe getting together and doing a class for spouses, um, you know, kids old enough to understand the concepts, uh, which is pretty young, um, and, and maybe trying to do something like that. So that, that was cool. Yeah. Anything to add to application, things we learned, things we saw, et cetera? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things is you've got to learn how to do stuff right because if you practice doing it wrong, uh, you're setting up, especially things like tourniquets, either for failure because yeah. you won't engage them correctly uh, or you won't place them on the body where they actually need to be, uh, where they'll be, they may be somewhat effective, but they won't be maximally effective. True. Um, you know, being being off by a quarter inch can have major complications. Sure. With some of this stuff. Uh, yeah, and the other thing, you know, we kind of, Chris and I sort of take our knowledge of this stuff for granted. Yeah. Because we've done it, uh, we got trained up on this stuff a long time ago, and we've practiced, you know, regularly over the years. Yeah. Uh, we kind of forgot that, or maybe didn't know that some of these guys hadn't ever done, you know, the formal med training. Yeah. So it was supposed to be sort of just a refresher night. Um, turned into kind of a, more of a first exposure for Fundies. a few people. Yeah, becoming a very, very entry level. This is your first time. Here's your building block. Here's where we're starting. Um, and Brian, you, uh, you touched on a really important thing. Um, the staging of a lot of this gear, if you buy a Cat 7 uh, tourniquet from us, um, it has a, a, a descriptor in it that tells you how to open up the tourniquet, how to stage it properly. Um, there are a couple varying... Um, ways you can do this but they're all very similar um some guys have different preferences about how they do it but generally if you stage it like it's set up per the instructions with the tourniquet not how it's shipped um you know it's it's not a big deal to do that it's super easy they give you graphics they give you descriptions etc but staging the tourniquet is what allows you to use it one-handed and and one-handed you know may mean there's a gun in your hand while you're keeping security and getting the tourniquet out and getting squared away to dive onto somebody and do work or it may be that it's you putting it on yourself and staging the gear appropriately is a really big deal. Uh, we talked about that with tourniquets. We talked about that with some of the pressure dressings that are in They're They're packaged in uh, plastic or, or in, in coatings and packaging that's very, very tough. It's meant to protect that dressing and keep it sterile and keep it dry and keep it protected in some pretty austere environments. Yeah. Um, you know, think about, you know, our guys out there doing God's work around the globe as soldiers um, and, and Marines and airmen and sailors, uh, you know, these guys are, you know, by nature of what they do, they're beating their kid up pretty bad. This stuff's got to survive that. So some of this packaging is not super easy to open. And the whole, I'll John Wayne it and pull the pin out of the grenade with my teeth is, is generally doesn't work out real well. So staging some of this stuff with medical tape or duct tape tabs on it so you can get a hold of it and tear it open a little bit easier. Um, understand that you will likely be sweaty, bloody, muddy. Um, you know, it, things get slippery, especially the kind of packaging gets slippery. It's yeah. all plastic. So it's properly staging that kind of stuff. And again, the guys who are out there done it, um, you know, the dudes who, who teach soldiers and, and, and other military folks how to do it for a living and have been there and have purple hearts and stuff like that. Um, they'll talk to you about that and they'll explain to you, Hey, this is how you need to prep this gear so you can actually get it open because when it happens, it'll likely be in the dark. It'll be the scariest day of your life and it'll suck. So, you know, listen to those people and getting those tips is a big deal. So. Yeah. Um, anything else on application, staging, etc. specifically? Yeah, this is all stuff you want to learn. Um, kind of, I would say, at least your first go around, focus strictly on the medical stuff. Yeah. Um, I've had the, the pleasure or maybe the, the misfortune 
of doing a five-day tactical medicine class um, involving small unit tactics and down, simulated downed operators, down a tactical response, um, trying to do tactical actually shooting and things, shooting and moving and communicating while doing medical stuff um, really sucks. Yes. If you're not squared away on all of that and also rather squared away on your medical stuff, um, it is a recipe for disaster. Um, the couple of folks who weren't real squared away on the, the small unit tactics side of things um, were significantly um, to the detriment of their team behind the power curve yeah. for the entire week. Um, and this was after everybody that took that class did um, two days strictly you know, medical in the classroom yeah. um, before we did the, the five-day class. Uh, this is not, you know, you don't want to learn these concepts in an injured shooter's class or, you know, something where you're trying to also, you know, shoot the gun and shoot, move, and communicate. Yeah. Uh, take the time, do a med-only class, you know, once or twice, um, really get squared away on this stuff, and then think about trying to integrate this into, you know, shoot, move, <clears throat> communicate, um, in more of a tactical type environment. And the same thing goes if you're sending this out to a friend of yours who he or she's an ER nurse, they're a trauma nurse. They may know, um, they can do, you know, they can do a whole bunch of stuff blindfolded under a boatload of stress with blood everywhere. Uh, but if they've never handled a gun before, that you know, where, where's your trigger finger? Where's the gun at? Should the gun just be in a holster for an hour, slung yeah. up for an hour and screw the gun, let somebody else be on the gun? Um, you know, same goes for that aspect of it. You got somebody who has the medical end of it squared away. Maybe they're a fireman, a medic, and they've been doing this stuff for years. Um, having that person get out there and do a, a good two-day handgun class, a good two-day rifle class, uh, or whatever it is you're going to be carrying around, and then have some training beyond that so that we understand where the fact that you're still responsible for your muzzle even when you're treating a patient. You're still responsible for your muzzle even when you're carrying a litter. You're still responsible for your muzzle even when you trip over something and eat shit in the dirt, um, in the dark. You're still responsible yeah. for your muzzle. It doesn't, nothing changes with that. Um, it's just a whole other level of responsibility and task saturation. Um, that that can lead to some serious safety concerns really really quickly, um, and a lot of times it's irreversible if you screw up. So you can't screw up. Yeah, or yeah. you just created another medical problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or or gave away your position, or this, or that, or any number of other tactical things as well. So for sure, you know, being squared away on both ends of that before you put them together is is critical for yeah. this kind of training. Um, never never mind stacking it onto the range in the dark and in different. You know, just keep piling stuff on it gets harder and harder and harder so yeah. um some guys who do a really good job with this stuff you might check out um will petty um what's will petty centrifuge Centers. now yeah. uh, they they do some some fighting with what you got kind of classes like you're an injured shooter and figure it the hell out and they take this through a multi-day evolution that starts with med training goes through moving around vehicles and then goes through um, you know, shoot house and then goes to force on force with all this stuff. And sometimes you start off in the hole. Sometimes you just end up in the hole, but you're going to end up in the hole and have to fight out of it. And it's a great, again, task saturation kind of class where you get pushed to your limits and figure out what it is you need to work on so that you're not failing the next time. Really good opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think extraction actually came up and yeah. for me was one of the biggest takeaways. Uh, so we had, we had, um, Lieutenant, or was it Captain Rogers or Lieutenant Rogers? Yeah, Captain Rogers. Captain, Captain Rogers needs to step away from the chow hall for a little bit. You could tell he's Air Force and he's been comfortable maybe. I don't know if he got pushed out of flight duty and in the ops or something like that for a while. So he was spending too much time at the chow hall, but, uh, 
He's Captain Roger. And this is a pot calling the kettle black, brother. He put some pounds on. He was a little pudgy. So. Oh, so Captain Rogers is a flight suit filled with sandbags. It's kind of all duct taped together. Yeah, we're chasing um, most most of your training dummies. Body. Yeah, most of your training dummies generally are running 135, 155, 175 pounds. Captain Rogers is a little portly, about 180, 185. And Captain Rogers has no spine, uh, no femurs, no tib fib, no ulna, no radius, no humerus. He's a bad guy. He's a lump. He's a lump. Captain Rogers is a lump. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, one of the things that rather quickly became apparent to everyone is that bodies are hard to move around. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, being physically fit enough that you can, you know, move, roll a teammate over to what? check underneath them, um, that you can move, you know, the, them around to treat them. Being fit. And what? Then, being able to you know help extract them from wherever you're at, yeah, uh, either to get them you know to where you can get them out of a structure or get them close to an exit. Yep. Um, yeah, that that really Try- I think was eye opening for a bunch of us. Yes, trying to trying to move around two hundred pounds o carcass, give or take, um, will will remind you of why you need to do strength training. As well as why you need to do cardio, um, it it's yeah. it sucks. So uh, one of one of our guys and, and guys, I, I've been through a little bit of this years ago. Um, I, I have my my brother in law's a, a fireman down in, in Southern Ohio, um, and and has very much been through every aspect of, of fire training you can do. He's been a trainer for his department, and his department does a lot of training as well. Um, moving bodies, he had shown me some of the strap systems that they that firemen carry in their pockets, and showed me how to use them. And, and, it, and it didn't occur to me then what a big deal it was because I was probably younger, stronger, in a lot better shape, could pick up a lot more weight and move with things and had done it more recently. Um, 20 years later, uh, you know, one of our guys shows us this wonderful strap thing and it's like, well, wow, I've kind of seen this before, but holy crap, this is a big deal. Um, talking to a fireman or a police officer who have had downed officer extrication, downed officer moving, downed officer removal, whatever you want to call it. Um, getting somebody who's injured, shot, hurt, whatever, out of a bad place. Um, a lot of these guys are carrying around a piece of one-inch webbing ginned up properly, uh, and you can use it as an improvised litter. You can use it as an improvised device to move somebody as a single person or as two people, three people, four people, whatever. But holy smokes, does it make life easy. It's a relatively inexpensive investment. Um, and I would be willing to bet that if you Googled, you could probably look around and find one. Just make sure it's not made out of Chineseium or Pakistaniseium or whatever. Yeah. Um, Googling something like a fireman's recovery strap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some really good YouTube videos out there on how to either make it, how to use it. Yeah. Um, you can use it as a, like kind of up and under somebody's arms yep. through their armpits and a drag strap. Uh, you can turn it into... A two-person litter, you can run it kind of as a four-person litter. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the length, you can actually start to kind of secure somebody into the litter based on how you twist it. Yep. Um, there's some really cool stuff you can do with it. Um, I will add for my misery down in, in the the sands of <laughs> Tennessee yeah. that your tactical you know litter or whatever um, unless you're spending over a grand on one for Matbox, they suck. They don't work. Yep. They cause way more challenges than what trying to use the recovery strap does. Yep. Yeah, the strap, learning how to use the strap was really cool. Um, it is something I like to practice with more. Um, I can't believe I'm saying that out loud because that sounds a lot like work. Um, but really, really cool device, something super simple to have around. 
Um, and, and like I said, the, the, the gentleman who was helping teach, teach this night, um, it, it, that it literally was, was fairly fresh on a lot of this stuff and is up to date on downed officer recovery techniques and things of that nature. And it was really, really cool to get an introduction to this. And that's something I'd, I'd like to push into more just in general. You don't think about having to move somebody. And we're talking about all this guys from a, from a tactical environment standpoint, active shooter, um, you know, some kind of mass CADS event involving, you know, a, a, t- a tactical threat. The reality check is this could be a really bad car wreck. Uh, you yeah. know, we just had the stockyards uh, down in Texas, uh, down in Dallas. They just had a, I don't know how many, 30, 40 car pile up. Six people, 100, 100 was it? Yeah. Six, six people killed, um, you know, uh, 30, 60 some people transported um, to the hospital. I mean, really, really bad situation. And, and just think of the force multiplier if, if every third car had somebody with a med kit in it that knew a little bit about what they were doing can take a lot of pressure off of emergency services to help people that are seriously injured, um, not, not just kind of bruised up, banged up, etc. So, you know, I, I, I carry a med kit uh, in my vehicle with me. Uh, I carry some basic stuff on my person the majority of the time. Uh, I always have this stuff when I'm on the range or if I'm out in the woods hiking or this, that, and the other. And there's a certain reality check to, you know, just, just being able to help a little bit extends the time and allows emergency services a little more time to get there, a little more time to assess and things of that nature. And if it's somebody you care about, you know, that, that may be something that you'll be a lot easier to live with yourself if yeah. you're a little more prepared. So uh, To throw in the kind of the backcountry thing, you know, if you're out doing multi-day backpacking trips, climbing trips, you know, backcountry or mountain hunting, um, taking a wolfers class, which is the wilderness leadership, first aid, no. something. Um, but Google wolfers, uh, not quite teachable C, more stabilization, and they spend probably half the class on being able to stabilize and extract your patient because um, you may have 10 clicks or more, you know, overland to get back to your trailhead. Or get to somewhere where you could land a helicopter. Yeah, and if you if you really want to get in into this deep, um, if you live in an area that has uh, wilderness EMS, uh, wilderness SAR, search and rescue, and stuff like that, um, you know, I, I know that like uh, Randall Adventure Training, they work out of uh, like Mid Atlantic, like North Carolina. They do a lot of training um, in around, in and around the Smokies and and in and around um, some areas in North Carolina and Tennessee where they do a lot of training of this nature, you know, get in with your local fire department and see if they take volunteers to help do search and rescue uh, or, or recovery. Um, you know, that's not a pleasant thing to think about, but going out and trying to find a body, you know, a lot of times that involves a lot of legwork. Um, but, it, but generally those folks have to get a, a, a base level amount of, of medical training because the job itself is risky. It's not just that yeah. you're trying to find somebody who's injured. It's that you may have to self-rescue and take care of yourself there too. Um, there are definitely some places out there. Uh, again, back to Greg Elifritz. Um, I don't know what's on his schedule for this year because I haven't looked at it. I apologize. But he also teaches some stuff that most of what you look at NAEMT training and TCCC training is, is all around like golden hour mentality. It's all around that 60 minutes to get somebody to a level one or to higher care. Um, you know, there are some concerns when you go beyond that. Uh, you know, just, just as a brief example, um, you know, we, we talked about needle Ds and decomps and should you be doing it, blah, 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 blah. Um, there are certain environments where you get, you know, outside of Franklin County where maybe you do need to needle D somebody. It's, it's a very, very rare, it's an extremely rare event. But if you're more than three or four hours from higher care, that person needs a chest tube. And so you, now you've done something where 
it was a last ditch, but can you do the next level of care that's going to be required? Yeah. And do you even understand that there's a whole other level behind what you just did? So, you know, a little bit of that is the knowledge end of things that might keep you from doing something that may or may not need to be done or may or may not be consequential or may do more harm than good at some point. So, you know, going to somebody who understands that those length of care or length of time to hire care concerns and taking that kind of training is definitely the next step for sure. So, you know, there are places you can get that training. So, yep. Yep. Cool. Um, trying to think if we missed any horses to beat on. Oh, hey, um, something to throw out there. Things like gauze, a spare tourniquet for training, um, buying an extra pressure dressing or two, um, some things like that. Getting training gear to start piling up and throwing in a spare bag to take to a training event like this sounds daunting from a cost perspective because you think, wow, I've got to go buy extras of stuff. If you have a med kit that you've had in your car, the trunk of your car, or on the back of your headrest for more than a year or two, you probably have stuff you need to replace just based on exposure to heat and possibly UV light. Um, if you've got a med kit on your plate carrier or on your war belt that's been on there for three years and hasn't been opened, there's probably stuff in it that you need to replace uh, and get updated and upgraded. Throw that stuff into a bag to use as training gear. Mark it appropriately. Take a red or a black or a sharpie of some sort and mark it with a you know a big T for training. Um, label it and put your initials and your address on it and your badge number on it, like some <laughs> other nerds that we know. I mean, I love you. Uh, you do a really good job with that stuff. Thank you. Um, sorry, I got to pick on you at least like once per co- per podcast since you brought it up. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, label label that stuff as training stuff and and take it out and use it. Um, it's kind of funny because, you know, some of us feel like, wow, I've got all this gear. Am I, am I kind of, am I the only guy who has this? And then when two or three of us show up with a bunch of extra training gear, it's like you can help new people get squared away and take away some of the cost concerns around that right yeah. now. Um, and if you're not buying ammo right now because the costs have gone full potato and you're not buying guns right now because the costs have gone full potato, uh, you should look at buying med gear right now because the costs are very stable, even though some PPE and basic gears can be a little tough to get at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, to add to that, on the training side of things, it is also important to get trained up on the gear that you are carrying. Um, not all tourniquets are done exactly alike. <laughs> True. Um, the little nuances of how to do things like the windlass, how to stabilize the windlass once you got it cranked down. Yep. Um, you don't want to have to figure that out, you know, in the moment. Yep. Um, in the seconds that it takes to figure that out, um, do start to matter. Yep. Uh, same with how to how to prep different tourniquets, uh, you know, different pressure bandages work different ways. Yeah. Um, so do train up on the gear that you're actually carrying. Yes. Um, and if you've got you know different kits with different things, either understand you got different kits with different things, or get all of your kits yeah. holding the same thing. And I would tell you, I found myself in that situation. I had some of the uh, the activities group tourniquets. Um, I, I don't know enough about that. I know it's TCCC approved. Um, and, and I've heard rumor mill stuff. I will say this flat out. I've heard rumor mill stuff about austere environment, sand and stuff like that being an issue with that tourniquet. I'm kind of calling BS if it's TCCC certified. But the reality check for me is I ended up with a couple of them. Um, I, I ended up putting those into the training gear as something for other people to use to understand, hey, here's a totally different kind of tourniquet you need to learn how to use, or you could learn how to use. Um, but for me, I went back and I consolidated across the board. Same four inch and six inch pressure dressings, same all Cat 7 tourniquets. Um, just for that exact reason. I didn't want to have to try and figure out what I was using in the dark at any given time. 
especially on the range or with my family, with people that I actually care about. So uh, d- good point in, in keeping your stuff squared away and consistent. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same thing as running the same gun all the time in my mind, honestly. So, yeah. yep. Cool. Um, guys, there's a, this is a big world out there. It's something that, you know, again, Brian and I kind of take for granted because we've been doing it. Um, maybe not as consistently or as, as in as much volume as we should, but we have a fairly solid background in it. Um, and done a lot of it. Um, get, go out, get some good fundamental training, take a good basic class. Um, and then, and then practice what you learn there. No different than with the gun. Um, because this is a part of the game that if you, if you're, Oh my God, I better get my ammo and my guns. Then, well, Oh my God, you better get your tourniquets and your pressure dressings to learn how to use them too. Because if you've got one, there's a damn good chance you're going to need the other more. So just yeah. something to kick around. Cool. Um, yep. Yeah, on that note, <laughs> please, uh, come visit us at the store. We're in Hilliard, Ohio, 4465 Cemetery Road. We're right in front of Aldi's. We're directly next to Louie's Fusion Grill. Uh, we're also on social media, as long as those commie bastards let us stick around. Grr. Uh, search for Cap City Outfitters on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we do an email newsletter once a week. You can sign up for that on our website, capcityoutfitters.com, or send us an email to info at capcityoutfitters.com, and we will happily add you to the newsletter list. Uh, and lastly, on our website, you can find valuable information such as how to do an FFL transfer or how to buy a suppressor via our storefront over at silencershop.com. Lastly, we are running um, hours 10 to 5, Tuesday through Saturday. We hope to see you soon. Thanks, guys.